Welcome to Quarantine Seminary with Brother Isom. All right, everyone, we are back with the second part of our look into Jacob 5, the allegory of the olive tree. Last episode, we did an overall summary of the story. The goal there was really to get a bird's eye view of the story and not to get trapped in the details. The details are important, but they can also overwhelm. There are already a lot of resources out there that are readily available for this allegory, so I'm really only going to focus the discussion on one of the most critical and least understood aspects of our doctrine, the Abrahamic Covenant. I was once in a gospel doctrine class with a decent gospel doctrine teacher, and when I raised the topic of the Abrahamic Covenant in one of my comments, she very honestly said, you know, I don't think that I really get the Abrahamic Covenant. Now, she might be unique as a gospel doctrine teacher in admitting that she doesn't know something, but she isn't unique in that misunderstanding of the Abrahamic Covenant. And part of the misunderstanding comes from, I think, how we tend to think about covenants. Growing up in the church, you make all kinds of covenants, and from a young age, we are taught to think about covenants as a two-way promise, similar to a contract. That's true, but it isn't the truest way to think about this concept. If all covenants are, are a series of contracts that we enter into throughout our life, the experience of our discipleship can become a little transactional. I'll do my part, then the Lord will do his part, and that's how I get blessings. Jennifer Lane, who was one of my professors at BYU-Hawaii, just came out with this beautiful book called Finding Christ in the Covenant Path. I highly recommend it. In the book, she says, Making a covenant in scriptural terms can best be understood as forming a new relationship. That's more like it. So with that in mind, some helpful questions we could ask when we were trying to understand our covenants are, what kind of relationship am I forming right now? How could I best describe it? What are the characteristics of that relationship? How will it change me? Are there any other analogous relationships that can help me understand this one? In the gospel, the most appropriate way to think about the types of relationships that our covenants form is through the lens of family. We always hear that family is central to God's plan for us, and I think we tend to limit that concept to our nuclear families, but it's bigger than that, and that's what the Abrahamic covenant is about. So let's start at the best place to start a story, in the beginning. That's how the Bible begins. But that wasn't really the beginning. Restoration scripture reveals that even before we had an earth or bodies or churches, we had a family. We had heavenly parents, we had brothers and sisters, and we had a covenant. The scriptures call this the everlasting covenant. Terrell Givens writes, The everlasting covenant is not a part of the gospel. It is the master framework that encompasses the entire gospel, or what Alma will call the great plan of happiness. Well, that's a little more expansive than the idea that covenants are just contracts. The covenant is actually a plan. And what's the purpose of that plan? It's to create a new way of being a family. So the earth is created and populated, and the Bible gives us that story as a seven-day process in the book of Genesis. Without going into all the reasons why, let me just say that it is broadly accepted among Hebrew Bible scholars that the creation of the earth is supposed to be understood as the creation of a temple. And in the ancient world, 
the temple housed the image of the god whose temple it was. So in Zeus's temple, you would expect to find a statue of Zeus. Well, the book of Genesis says that God put his image into the creation earth temple, and that image took the form of humanity, Adam and Eve in particular. In all of God's creation, humans had the specific role of being God's image on earth, which makes sense since we were from the beginningless beginning the children of our heavenly parents. If you were to see my sons, you would immediately know that they were mine. Physically, they have my image. But God intended humanity to reflect more than just physical qualities into the world. When asked about divorce by the Pharisees, Jesus answered, Have you not read that he which made them at the beginning made them male and female, and said, For this cause shall a man leave father and mother, and shall cleave to his wife, and they twain shall be one flesh? Wherefore they are no more twain, but one flesh. What therefore God hath joined together, let no man put asunder. Now, Jesus is answering a specific question at a specific time to a specific audience. But if we can also understand his words in light of the knowledge that humans have a particular vocation as image bearers, we can see that the unity of the family is a key way that God's going to fulfill his purposes here on this earth. And that fits with our understanding of the covenant plan. Something that happens very quickly after Adam and Eve, however, is that their family doesn't stay unified. Cain kills Abel, and the scriptures say that a particularly nefarious idea is introduced right from the beginning. And it's that a person or people can gain power over others by violent means. Humanity soon begins to lose the image of God. And with the exception of Enoch's people who achieved the unity intended for us all, the human family gets so bad that the earth was filled with violence. We then get the story of the flood, which begins the tale again with a single family. Soon, though, that family breaks up and creates different groups, and those different groups create empires, and those empires utilize violence to gain power. That's the story that the scriptures tell leading up to Abraham. And then we get Abraham who desires to be a father of many nations and a prince of peace. And God takes that everlasting covenant and renews it with a particular focus on Abraham and his family. Instead of approaching the whole human family, God will choose one family to be his image bearers. But he hasn't abandoned everyone else. He promises that through Abraham's seed shall all the kindreds of the earth be blessed. In other words, God says to Abraham, Through your family... I'm going to fulfill my everlasting covenant and bless my entire family. The family of Abraham, some of which become known as the house of Israel, are chosen to be instruments in that plan to create a new type of human family, a new creation, a new humanity, what Paul will call new creatures in Christ. What sets this new family apart is not their inherent superiority or righteousness. It's that they are supposed to treat others differently. They aren't supposed to seek power through violence. They're supposed to serve, and bless, and redeem. To help in this process, God gives this family all kinds of resources. They have prophets, scriptures, rituals, commandments, temples, priesthood, land, and power. They have a Messiah. They're supposed to use those resources to reflect God's image into the world and redeem his family. It doesn't always work out that way, though. Being chosen doesn't mean that you are exempt from the struggles of mortality. So we get the Hebrew Bible or the Old Testament. 
as the story of God's efforts to work with an imperfect people to accomplish his ends. One of Israel's persistent struggles in the Old Testament is with idolatry, or the worship of the creature and not the creator. And the thing about worship is that you tend to take on the characteristics of the things that you worship, whether good or bad. There are periods in the Old Testament where Israel, while still chosen to be God's instruments, looks more like a typical empire than God's image in the world. The story of Jonah comes to mind. Jonah is an Israelite. He's a prophet called to redeem the people of Nineveh, which in the Old Testament is portrayed as pretty much the worst place in the world. And Jonah is constantly the one who is working against God's purposes. He's the one that runs from God. He's the one that tries to hide on a boat. He's the one who doesn't want to preach to Nineveh. While on the other hand, the Gentiles... On the boat, fear God. They don't want to mistreat Jonah. The people of Nineveh repent in spite of Jonah's desiring their destruction. It's almost comical how God's chosen messenger Jonah fulfills God's purposes in spite of himself. At this point, you might be thinking, I thought that this episode was supposed to be about the allegory of the olive tree. Well, this is the allegory. This is the story that the Lord is telling in Jacob 5. The tame olive tree, which the Lord compares to the house of Israel, has these deep roots in a covenant with God, and he's given it all the resources needed to bring forth fruit, but it's dying. The Lord can't let this olive tree just die. He's made a covenant to bring forth the fruit of the everlasting covenant. So he's going to do everything he can to keep this tree healthy and strong. At times, the most prominent parts of the tree have to go for the sake of the roots. The kingdom of Israel and Judah need to be destroyed by the Assyrians and the Babylonians respectively. Temples need to be destroyed, and the tender branches of the ten tribes and the kingdom of Judah are carried away and scattered into Gentile nations filled with wild trees. At times, the Lord needs to lead others away, like Lehi and his family, or Zedekiah's son, Mulek. And all of these tender branches will be strengthened as they are grafted into various parts of the vineyard. But they will also produce mixed results. There may, for example, be Lamanites and Nephites who take turns producing wild and good fruit. The people who return to Jerusalem will also produce mixed results, sometimes drawing on the strength of other nations to produce God's kingdom, and at other times overwhelming the covenant to bring forth all kinds of bad fruit. The most important part of this, however, is not determining which part of the allegory responds to which historical event. The most important part is to realize that Zenos prefaces this whole story with thus saith the Lord. The Lord is the storyteller, and the story has been told all of the way up until the final harvest. And spoiler alert, the covenant ends up producing good fruit. That is a remarkable thing. At the time of this recording, the world has just passed 1 million cases of COVID-19, and we are still climbing the mountain of the curve. The world economy has ground to a halt. Today, unemployment in the United States hit 6.6 million and is expected to continue to rise. There is a lot of uncertainty, but we have to remember that the story has been told and the covenant made from the beginning produces good fruit in the end. The same may be the case with our lives. It is a certainty in our lives that we will feel scattered. We will feel like we were planted in the worst part of the vineyard. It will feel like no matter how hard we try, we are only producing wild fruit. But we have to remember that the Lord of the vineyard and his servant are still at work in our lives. In fact, if we are trying to find historical correlations with specific points of this allegory, we should recognize that we are in the final gathering. 
Natural branches are being returned to natural roots, and it is all hands on deck. The Lord himself, with all of his servants, are drawing on every resource in order to bring forth the fruit of a new type of human family. When Joseph Smith spoke of sealing families together, he talked about a chain of family going all the way back to Adam. One human family sealed together, creating heaven on earth. This is our story. It's the story of our family. It's the story of God's faithfulness to us. The Book of Mormon prophets had this amazing insight hundreds of years before Christ that God himself would join the human experience and suffer every type of scattering so that he could be faithful to his covenant. Paul joins the Book of Mormon prophets with this powerful truth that while we aren't always faithful to our end of the covenant relationship with God, he's so faithful that he came to fulfill the covenant in our behalf so that we could bring forth fruit through his grace. Don't get lost in the weeds of this allegory. Go back to the question that Jacob asked at the end of Jacob 4. How is it possible that after having rejected the sure foundation, that it could become the head of our corner? How is it possible that we are redeemable? It's possible because of the wise, powerful, just, merciful, and loving care of a gardener and his servant. Thanks for listening. We'll talk to you next time. Quarantine Seminary is an independent podcast unaffiliated with The Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints. None of the views expressed here represent the official teaching or position of The Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints. Our music today, as always, was provided by Dallin Isom. Be sure to check out his stuff at SoundCloud.com. Be sure to subscribe to stay up to date on new content. Until next time, I'm your host, Mason Isom.